and welcome to COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers. Thank you so much for joining us. You'll notice the console on the bottom of your screen. There are a number of frames, and we encourage you to move around the windows to your liking and minimize what you don't need. You're also able to submit questions for the faculty by clicking the Q&A button towards the bottom of your console. Questions will be addressed during our Q&A session at the end of the presentation. At the conclusion of the presentation, you'll be able to access the evaluation and attest for credit by clicking the Claim Credit link. Your thoughts and comments are important and will help us develop CME activities on this and similar topics in the future. Since slides are data heavy, we have made these slides available in PDF format in the resource list and on the DKBMed website at covid19.dkbmed.com. Today, we welcome Dr. Michael Eisen from the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Here are his disclosures. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Eli Lilly and Company. The learning objectives for the programs are appraise the efficacy, safety, and indications for treatments for patients with COVID requiring hospitalization, Evaluate management strategies for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19. Explain mechanisms of action of monoclonal antibodies and other current and development treatments for COVID-19. And describe best practices for managing patients with COVID-19 with monoclonal antibodies and other agents. Dr. Eisen, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the treatment of uh, COVID-19. Everyone, I think, is probably focused on vaccines. That's what's in the news. But unfortunately, there are still a large number of patients that are getting newly infected that we need to think about how we're going to treat these individuals. I think the critical thing to recognize is that this is a relatively interesting infection in that its manifestations are the direct result of both the viral replication of the virus as well as the host immune response to the infection. And in fact, as shown in this uh, schematic, early on you have predominantly viral drivers to the infection. Uh, this is when the patients are early in the uh, periods of symptomatic disease. They may have low-level abnormalities on uh, their lab work. They then move into the phase where they start getting sick, typically sometime between days 7 and 10. The symptoms get more severe. They start having shortness of breath. They have abnormality on their chest imaging. This is where the host immune system is starting to uh, ramp up. Uh, and cause some uh, potential damage to the host. Then as you get further along, as viral loads uh, start uh, declining, uh, the host immune response is really the predominant driver contributing to the severe lung disease uh, that we have. And as a result, one of the themes that we'll see uh, as we start talking about the management of these patients, how we use different approaches to therapy really will depend a little bit on the, the clinical course of disease. Currently, we're using measures of clinical uh, severity, that they're requiring oxygen, that they're in the ICU, those kind of things. What we really need to move to is an approach that we can really individualize to patients, looking at certain immune markers or uh, inflammatory triggers that drive our decision-making uh, for one therapy or, or another. So I think one of the first areas that I wanted to talk about are patients outside the hospital. 
This is where 80% of patients with COVID-19 are. Many of these patients at high risk of uh, progression to, to lower tract disease, those with things like obesity, hypertension, other underlying comorbidities, immunosuppression, as well as certain populations, African-American and Hispanic patients really do pose an increased risk. And intervening on these patients earlier with the goal of preventing worsening of disease and uh, hospitalization. I think one thing that hasn't been a huge focus is actually getting these people to feel better quicker. And that's something that I think we're starting to see signals of for our overall uh, approach to these patients. Really, the critical first step of management is really taking care of the patients. They need to stay home. They need to monitor their symptoms. And if they're getting worse, calling into their provider. They need uh, access to supportive care that's provided in a safe way. So someone that can help them with their food and, and beverages, maintain their hydration, but doing so in a very uh, safe uh, way. Um, we need to maintain isolation for at least 10 days after a symptom onset and at least 24 hours after fever resolution, and that uh, the contact should really try to avoid being around them if they've been in contact with one of the sick people for two weeks. In terms of uh, therapeutics for this uh, population, one that has been studied is uh, fluvoxamine, an antidepressant that appears to potentially have a uh, impact in reducing viral replication, perhaps uh, inflammation. In this relatively small study of a little over uh, 150 uh, individuals, half the patients received fluvoxamine uh, for 15 days, the other half placebo, and we found a significant reduction in uh, clinical deterioration of those patients needing oxygen or advanced medical care, 8% uh, incidence in the placebo arm, 0% uh, in the fluvoxamine. Clearly, we need more data to prove uh, in a larger population outside of this one site. But I think this is uh, an area that we do need to be thinking about how to focus on this uh, outpatient population. The second approach is the use of monoclonal antibodies. Uh, the first to present their data was uh, bamlanivimab. This looked at a number of outcomes. The use of antibody was associated with acceleration uh, in clearance of the virus. All doses of the therapy did improve uh, recovery of the virus over time compared to placebo here in the red. It also was associated with a reduction, a much more rapid reduction in symptoms related to COVID-19. But importantly, it also resulted in a reduction in the number of hospitalizations among this uh, population from 6.3% in the placebo-treated patients down to about 1.6%. Absolute numbers in the placebo five uh, in the treated. So it is a, uh, a smaller number yet for this high risk population, one of the best therapies uh, that we have. The second, kezirivimab and indivimimab from Regeneron. This has the advantage of being a combination of two different antibodies, thereby being more broadly active against a range of viruses, including those that may be variant uh, viruses and prevents uh, escape. Likewise, this was associated with uh, more rapid improvement in uh, viral titer, as well as a lower rate of hospitalization. These are a bit of a challenge uh, to uh, implement. Uh, you have to provide the EUA fact sheet to the, the patient. It's only for use in patients uh, with risk factors for severe COVID-19. It requires about an hour for infusion, another hour for monitoring, um, and really does require some degree of sophisticated care for delivering of the drug. 
finding where the drug uh, is given uh, may be a challenge. There's this uh, website, the protectpublic.hhs, a website where individuals can look and see who has access to these antibodies if you are diagnosed and are in one of the risk populations. Now moving on to where most of the focus has been the hospitalized patient population, really one of the, the first drugs uh, to be uh, looked at uh, in this population is remdesivir, a drug that had been previously de been developed for other indications, including Ebola. It inhibits the RNA polymerase of the SARS-CoV-2 and reduces the, the replication of the virus. It's a prodrug that's converted to the active molecule in the patient. The uh, study, which was done very early on in the uh, outbreak, uh, showed a, a statistically significant reduction in number of days till hospital uh, discharge or recovery of requiring oxygen from 15 days in the placebo down to 10 days in the uh, treated arm. There was a trend that wasn't statistically significant to reduce mortality uh, as well. In terms of other individual outcomes, there was an improvement in the uh, ordinal scale over time in these uh, patients with about a two-day speeding of recovery, a shorter duration of hospitalization, and shorter requirement for uh, oxygen uh, in patients that got remdesivir. Looking at subgroup analyses, really overall there was a benefit, but there was very little benefit in those patients not requiring oxygen, as well as those that were severely ill, such as the mechanically ventilated and ECMO patients. And so really the sweet spot is in patients uh, earlier in the clinical course of disease requiring oxygen. In this uh, population with severe disease, uh, potentially 10 days of therapy uh, provides a better outcome, as was determined by this open-label study that found more uh, recovery uh, in those patients that got 10 days versus 5 days in the severely ill population requiring mechanical uh, ventilation. Now, a lot of these findings were kind of thrown into question with the solidarity trial. It's important to recognize this uh, trial uh, had differences in the way that it was designed, and really its primary endpoint uh, was to look at mortality. They were able to look at things like time to discharge, but given that this was a global study, there's a lot of variability that goes into it. They didn't find a, a benefit for remdesivir overall in terms of mortality, but I will point out no study so far has shown a mortality benefit. I think everyone has been fixated on producing a mortality benefit, but what we're starting to see is that these antivirals probably are more effective early in the clinical course of disease, and what they may be doing is preventing some degree of progression and accelerating uh, freedom from the hospital. And so really the critical endpoint probably should be hospital discharge or other surrogates for getting the patient out of the hospital. And while some may question uh, what is uh, the most important endpoint, I would posit that this is a critically important endpoint. If you can get patients out of the hospital quickly, especially when you're peaking, that gives you more capacity to care for new patients with the disease, or more importantly, those patients that need healthcare otherwise uh, beyond code requirements. The second uh, group of uh, therapies uh, that have been looked at have been immune modulatory agents. The reason why this was looked at significantly is that we know that SARS-CoV-2 markedly activates a number of cascading systems that lead to a hyperinflamed situation. And that the thought would be that we would start intervening on some of these uh, individual pathways to improve outcomes. There was a huge amount of enthusiasm for tozolizumab and cerulimab. Then there was a wave of studies that failed to show any benefit. We'll talk about one of the recent trials that did show some efficacy. 
Barsitinib, uh, which is a JAK inhibitor, was shown to, to show benefit, but in a really small uh, subset uh, of patients, IL-1 therapies, again, early studies showed benefit, later on studies really weren't uh, shown to be uh, terribly beneficial. And then broader acting immune modulators like steroids really have become uh, a standard of care. So let's first look at barsitinib. So the NIH ACT trial, ACT2, uh, focused on uh, the barsitinib, JAK inhibitor, as a potential therapy for these patients. Overall, there was a benefit, but really, as you can see, no big difference in outcomes in patients with ordinal 4, 5, or 7. So those are patients... Uh, not requiring oxygen, those requiring oxygen, and those that are intubated, and really only uh, a benefit uh, in those patients requiring high level of uh, advanced oxygenation. So again, this it, this got an EUA. This is really the, the population that it's geared at. Uh, there's ongoing ACT4, which is going to be comparing steroids versus barsitinib uh, to see if the risk benefits uh, are clarified. Clearly, you don't get the downsides of steroids with this, but again, it doesn't benefit as broad of a population. Dexamethasone is the study that the recovery trial um, showed to be uh, very effective and includes uh, a wide range of patients that benefit. Dexamethasone was found to be beneficial in those patients requiring mechanical ventilation or any form of supplemental oxygen, but in fact caused increased uh, mortality in those patients not receiving oxygen and therefore really needs to be restricted to patients in the hospital that are requiring uh, oxygen. This resulted in improvement in mortality. Other endpoints uh, weren't uh, carefully looked at. And ongoing studies have uh, really clarified that this effect goes beyond just uh, dexamethasone and includes other steroids, uh, including hydrocortisone and methylprednisolone, although most centers are generally using dexamethasone. Convalescent plasma it was, again, another agent that had a lot of enthusiasm uh, for its use uh, early on. Unfortunately, I think the United States kind of went down the wrong path, and instead of doing a prospective uh, randomized trial, had an open-label expanded access uh, program, was effective in getting uh, nearly 90,000 uh, individuals access to the plasma, but we still don't know whether it was uh, beneficial. Uh, this study that uh, came out of Argentina really was the first of now several studies to show that there really is uh, not much benefit to the use of convalescent plasma. No mortality deficit, but clearly uh, no uh, significant benefit. A follow-on study that really uh, focused on a much more refined uh, population, those that got high titer plasma administered very early on, within 72 hours after uh, symptom onset in adults that were older, there was a uh, mortality benefit. But again, this is a very small subset of uh, patients. Uh, and so again, I think there is a role, particularly early on after the uh, symptom onset, but whether or not it can be broadly used, I think the uh, majority of the data really fails to show significant uh, benefit. So what are uh, treatments that are currently recommended and authorized through emergency use authorization? Um, the monoclonal antibodies, bamlanivimab and kazirivimab plus indimumab, is approved or is authorized under emergency use uh, for outpatients 12 years or older, confirmed with uh, COVID-19 within 10 days of symptom onset at high risk of complications. I will highlight that, again, the earlier the therapy, the better. The studies really looked at patients within three days after 
after the, their positive PCR test. And so while the 10-day window is likely broader than what was studied, really the focus should be getting these patients in and getting them started on therapy. Remdesivir is approved in uh, patients uh, 12 and older and 40 kilograms or older that require hospitalization. The main area where there's limited information is on patients with renal insufficiency, uh, and a study will uh, uh, look at this moving forward. Clearly beneficial for patients requiring oxygen. The uh, smaller study that looked at uh, mild to moderate COVID-19 in the hospitalized setting did suggest that there may be a small improvement in patients not requiring oxygen and can be considered in that population. Dexamethasone is currently part of the all treatment guidelines for COVID-19 for patients requiring supplemental oxygen. It is a therapy that is given off-label. Convalescent uh, plasma is authorized for an emergency use for hospitalized uh, patients, but really its use should probably be restricted to older adults getting high titer plasma within the first 72 hours after symptom onset. And then the combination of uh, remdesivir and varsitinib has been granted an uh, emergency use authorization for patients greater than two years of age, really with a focus on those that are requiring advanced uh, oxygen uh, support. Now, recently, there's been a lot of focus on uh, tocilizumab based on the, the recent trial that did show that very early uh, therapy may be uh, beneficial and, and is undergoing discussion about whether to be included in the NIH uh, guidelines. I think, like everything, there's uh, a number of different studies. We really have to start looking at the, the totality of the information to really understand what to use and, and when. And I think that, in my opinion, is the, the biggest challenge. I think the earlier the therapy for all of these, the better. The big challenge is, is when is it better to think about using a uh, immune modulatory agent versus an agent that's directed at the virus. Lastly, I think it's important that we have very little data from any of these trials looking at uh, virology or biomarker signals. And so this is a big gap that hopefully we fill uh, in the very near future. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Eisen, for those wonderful updates. Um, we are now going to move to the Q&A section. Um, as a reminder, to submit a question, please click the Q&A button. Um, it should be on the side of your console. We will try to get to as many as time allows. Our first learner question is, what is the optimal time to initiate remdesivir treatment? So the optimal time is as early as possible in, in the treatment course. Uh, clearly, as soon as someone uh, starts to require oxygen, that clearly would be the time in which uh, therapy would be started. Um, there is some evidence to starting uh, this on patients that are, uh, as soon as they're admitted, to try to speed the recovery. Again, it's an antiviral, and the one thing that we've learned about antivirals is that the earlier they're started, the better. Okay, thank you. Our next question is, do you have any data or information about the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Well, we're focusing on the data from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, hasn't been released publicly, so I haven't seen anything about that. Okay, great. Thank you. Our next learner question. Is remdesivir a contraindicated uh, in CKD? So it is uh, recommended to be used with caution. 
there's no data on its safety. The concern is, is uh, that the uh, cyclodextran may build up in patients that have uh, renal insufficiency and lead to worsening uh, renal insufficiency. Um, there are case reports and small experiences in patients uh, with renal disease. If it is being used in uh, patients with uh, abnormal uh, kidney disease, it would be important to use it just for the five days and do so in consultation with a nephrologist. Fantastic. Thank you. And our next question is, what about patients with asthma? Do we not treat with steroids? So I think the thing is, is that if you would normally give uh, steroids to the, the asthmatic, I think that that's something that you should consider. I think that the only uh, thing that I would say is, is there is this signal of increased uh, mortality. There's not a huge uh, amount of uh, data for this particular uh, population. I think it would be someone that uh, I would be wanting to keep a close eye on. Um, I would be more comfortable using it if they're in the hospital where you can uh, monitor the patient as they uh, clinically improve. Fantastic. Thank you. And our next question is, can you comment on the Colcorona trial of colchicine? So the colchicine uh, study just came uh, out in preprint uh, today. While there was a lot of press about it being the game changer, uh, looking at the uh, preprint uh, press, I'm less enthusiastic. It did not meet the primary endpoint. The p-value for the primary endpoint was 0.08, so close but uh, not statistically significant. And this was a very large study, uh, several thousand patients included. So really, if there was a meaningful difference, it should have uh, been seen. There were some signals in patients that were PCR positive, but again, I think this will have to go through uh, careful vetting until uh, we get the final paper. It would not be something that I would recommend until we see the, the final data that uh, comes out from the study, especially given that the primary endpoint was not met for the study. Fantastic. Thank you. Are the current antibody treatments expected to be effective against the emerging strains? So the variants uh, that have uh, garnered a lot of attention, um, we have to recognize that each one is a little bit different. The UK strain has a number of mutations, only a few in the uh, receptor main region of the spike protein. The South African strain has more and a bit more concerning changes in their receptor binding domain, similar to the Brazilian variant. Um, there's very limited data. It does show that there is some slight reduction in neutralization with the UK strain uh, with bamlanivimab. Still should provide uh, some benefit. Combination regimens like the kezirizumab, uh, indivimab uh, from Regeneron has multiple uh, sites that it's attaching to uh, and retains more activity against uh, these uh, variants. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Um, and our next question is, have there been reports of bradycardia in hospitalized patients, either due to remdesivir dosing or COVID? There definitely have been patients that have developed bradycardia um, with COVID-19. It is not a common uh, side effect of uh, any of the agents uh, that we've talked about in our presentation today. Okay, thank you. And the next question is, how can outpatients access antibodies quickly? It seems to take days to get a referral. So I don't have a great answer for this. Um, it really, I think, depends a lot on the healthcare uh, system and the, the setup in your 
hospital or uh, community. We have at our center a pretty efficient system. The physician, as soon as they put the order in, the patient gets scheduled and in general the the patient uh, can get the infusion uh, within about 36 hours of the order going in. That's not always the case for all uh, centers around the country, but again, I think providers should work with their healthcare system to make sure that it's an easy and efficient because time is uh, critical in getting these uh, therapies started. Dr. Eisen, is antithrombotic therapy indicated for COVID-19 positive residents in skilled nursing facilities or long-term care? If oxygen therapy becomes necessary, is dexamethasone recommended in the LTC setting? Those are complex uh, questions. And so I think in a skilled nursing facility or long-term care facility, I would, uh, you know, these are patients presumably that have are in the recovery phase and are improving uh, and are are going to the long-term or skilled uh, nursing facility. And so uh, I would recommend they would follow their standard uh, protocols for um, any of their patients. In patients, again, in these type of facilities, presumably they've gone through the acute phase. I think if they're requiring increasing oxygen, they probably should have a very thorough evaluation. And again, uh, you know, you have to to judge if they're early in the clinical course and it's felt to be uh, COVID that's the main driver, then perhaps sending them back to the hospital so they can get remdesivir and dexamethasone as the standard for these patients. Our next question is, can you get reinfected once you have had COVID? The answer to that is definitely yes. Um, uh, There have been multiple case reports uh, for uh, patients uh, getting reinfected despite having disease uh, earlier in the year. What we've learned is is that the uh, antibody titers, particularly in those patients that had milder disease, may be positive but at relatively low levels and maybe not sufficient enough to protect against reinfection with COVID-19. Likewise, uh, as time goes by, it's possible that the protective titers wane uh, and patients can be uh, reinfected. In general, uh, the the CDC guidance uh, suggests uh, that you need to be about two months after recovery from the infection before you would consider the patient has reinfection. I will say if it's closer to that 60-day range, it's more likely to be persistently positive shedding, and you should look at uh, the CT value to see if it's very high. It means there's very little virus there. It's probably the, the virus still clearing out from the primary infection. We've done a lot of work to sequence uh, these patients, and many of the patients aren't reinfections if they're within 90 days or so of the primary infection but are just persistent shedding. Great. Thank you. The next question is, with the emergence of COVID mutations and variants and concern regarding increased transmissibility, are there any new or enhanced precautionary recommendations, for example, double masking, standing further than six feet, or wearing gloves? Yeah. So there are currently no updated guidance for changing the uh, preventative strategies. There's been a lot of lay press uh, focused on the double masking, I personally see very little reason to do it. The data that it's uh, based on is pretty sparse uh, in the least. Uh, I think the quality of the mask is really what's uh, more important. If you've got a medical grade mask of any kind, I think that's sufficient. I think if you have a self-made single ply mask, there may be a benefit to adding a second layer, whether that's a second mask or uh, multiple layers to the material that is covering your mouth and nose. Otherwise, there's really yet uh, no guidance uh, for enhanced protection. 
I will say glove wearing likely will never uh, be a recommendation. Uh, I actually think it increases the risk of infection. Um, when your hands are naked, you're more likely to wash your hands. Um, there's no difference between your hands or rubber gloves in terms of how easily the virus uh, can stick to it. And therefore, if you're wearing gloves, you're less likely to, to wash them and therefore maybe more likely to inadvertently infect yourself. Thank you. Um, the next question is, what is the current standard of care for hospitalized patients not being ventilated? So that's a very complex question because uh, that ranges uh, from patients not requiring oxygen to uh, those requiring advanced non-invasive uh, ventilation. And really the, the standard of care is standard supportive care for patients requiring oxygen, dexamethasone uh, for all of those patients, uh, as well as remdesivir for these uh, individuals, patients not requiring oxygen, perhaps remdesivir, but uh, definitely not uh, dexamethasone. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much. I think we're going to take three more questions. Um, the next question is, when can we expect more data on the monoclonal antibodies? That's a good question. Unfortunately, we may not get a lot more data. Um, uh, there are groups that have uh, given real-world experiences that I think we're going to see next. Many of the trials that were designed uh, for, uh, to look at uh, monoclonal antibodies moved from randomized trials to open-label uh, expanded access uh, trials. So I'm not expecting a huge amount of randomized trial data with the antibodies that we have. We will get probably a larger experience that may refine the benefit uh, that these uh, therapies uh, provide. Um, there are newer antibodies, including some that are broadly active against SARS-CoV-2 and other coronaviruses uh, for which there are going to be randomized trials, and I think uh, we'll get some useful information uh, from them. And our next question is, how long is someone showing positive for exposure to having COVID in blood tests? Well, there's no blood test that looks for in active infection. These are only uh, looking at antibody tests. And so these uh, develop relatively soon after uh, infection. Usually within the first couple of days, you have IgM. Within uh, seven to 10 days, you start getting detection of uh, IgG. Those persist for a very long period of time. Okay, great. Thank you. And we're going to have one more learner question and then send you on your way. The question is, are there any drugs that can be used to help patients recover their loss of smell due to COVID? That's a great question. Uh, nothing that I've seen uh, will help with that. We put a lot of energy into studies of therapies uh, that were focused on treatment of hospitalized patients. We've spent nearly no attention to the long-term symptoms in these patients. I think there's going to be a lot of focus on that, including therapeutic strategies. Uh, we also need more effort put in the early pre-hospitalization stage to prevent people from needing hospitalization and speeding their recovery uh, from clinical illness. Well, that does conclude our webinar. Thank you again, Dr. Eisen, for this great program. For our audience, if you'd like to claim credit, please click the claim credit link in your console. Please be on the lookout for our 30-day survey, which you will receive through email. And as always, your responses will help us further your further education. Uh, we will answer more of your questions in the future on future webinars, so please stay tuned for that. Um, and we thank you for joining us. Have a great day. And Dr. Eisen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was great uh, talking with you today.